0: And, and we've got ways to prove it, right? If you, if you do like a, a, a dating profile online, you're gonna put something on there that lets people know that you're a good person. You're gonna be like, here's a picture of me work, volunteering at the soup kitchen because I'm a good person. Here's a picture of me with a dog because people who like dogs are good people, you know, or whatever. Like you're gonna have something on there that just says, proof, I am a good person. There are bad people in the world. I am not one of those. I'm a good person. It's weird though, but I've never had anybody come up to me and be like, Chris, actually, I'm a terrible person. Have you? Like, people generally don't say that. We all think of ourselves as slightly above average in the good, bad scale, right? And I, nobody comes up and is like, actually, I'm just, I'm crappy. And what's weird about that is some people are kind of crappy, right? Like, you can think of people in your life that you would be like, that person was terrible, right? You got someone in your past, you're like, they were terrible to me. They, this, you got someone in your head that you're like, that's a terrible person. But the weird thing is that person that you're thinking of thinks they're a good person, they also are like, "No, I'm, I'm a good person," because they're thinking of someone else who's worse and whatever. Like, it's a weird setup. It's a weird system in the world of how are we actually good, and how would we know, and what is truly good, and maybe not a good person or whatever. Like, what, what is what is? Uh, I guess an, an ancient word for that. What what is right or righteous? Are we are we actually righteous and good people? Um, it's it, it's a weird setup, and I, and I bring all that up because. I want to talk about that from the scripture today. We have been studying the book of Romans, which is a a sort of a a dense theological letter written in about 58 AD that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was living in Corinth, and he wrote the letter to the church in Rome. And a lot of, uh, honestly, a lot of Western civilization has been built on Christianity and specifically built on a lot of the concepts that are in the book of Romans. And so we've been calling this series Pillars, just like pillars hold up a, a roof or something. Uh, these are foundational pillars. These are foundational truths from our faith that kind of hold up the world today or hold up what we believe and our worldview and, and all of that. So we're, we're talking about these foundational truths. And, and today I want to talk about th- this idea of being a good or a bad person because it's, it's where Paul goes in, in Romans chapter three. And he's been kind of building this argument over, over the last couple of weeks. We talked about in Romans 1, if you are here a couple weeks ago, it's a super fun message about God's wrath. Um, if you want to go back and listen to that as a you know, pick-me-up in your week. Um, but the, the idea that God has wrath and anger towards sin and why that actually matters and why that's something we want, in, in, in fact. And then last week, we talked about God's judgment. Again, not a pick-me-up kind of topic, but the idea that God will judge us, uh, each according to his works and his deeds and all the stuff that was written in Romans 2. We talked about that. Um, and now I want to talk about, uh, okay, it, we're judged at the end of the day, how are we actually good? Because this, this is where Paul goes in Romans. He's going to explain a little bit of that. Of that. Now, all throughout Romans, I'm not reading you every verse, but throughout Romans, there's, a, there's this ongoing conversation that Paul puts in here. If you go back and read this yourself, you'll see it. He talks a lot about Jews and Gentiles. And that is a conversation that doesn't make a ton of sense to us today, Twenty centuries later, or whatever, we're not like. Why is that a, a thing? But it was a big deal. It was a big ethnic, um, you could say, almost racial or religious uh, tension that, that that he was dealing with at the time. So let me just give it to you briefly because it shows up all over the book and it's in the background of what we're going to talk about today. But I don't want to dive too deep into it. Basically, it's like this: the average Roman citizen. Think about the Roman Empire, guys in the room. We do this about every day, right? Like so. Okay, so think about the Roman Empire again today. If you haven't yet, um, the the, the Rome, Roman Empire. You think about um, you know the the, the Caesar and, and the, the the guards and and what that world was like and the the philosophers and the thinkers and the, and, and all that and and the whole vibe of that Roman Empire. That is Gentiles, non Jews. And they're going to worship multiple gods. They're going to have mistresses and wives and slaves. And there's just this whole thing. They're not going to have a lot of food restrictions on what they do. They're going to be, it's pretty wild living, right, in the, in the Roman Empire, the glory of Rome and all that kind of stuff. So they're doing that thing. That would be considered non-Jews or in... It, the language of the New Testament, and Gentiles, okay? The Jews, then, are a subgroup that lives within the Roman Empire, a small religious community that lives in one corner of the Roman Empire. So think, uh, maybe for us, think um, Romans would be like Americans, and then the Jews would be like the Amish who live in Pennsylvania or something. They're Like, okay, here's this subgroup. They do things a little differently, and they follow rules that we don't follow, and they have laws that we don't have. That was the Jews in the ancient world. But the deal is, you come, to, you come to Christ, you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And for the Gentiles, this is a good deal because now you are connected to God, the true creator of the universe, and you get all the blessings that the Jews had. They, they had various blessings of being part of the family of God. You get that too. You're like, cool, I get to be in. I'm in on this. This is great. For the Jews, for the, for the Jews to see the Gentiles also get blessed by God, this was not as great. They're sitting there going like, wait a second, I'm God's special chosen child. How come you're letting these fools in and become special and chosen as well? Like, that's not great. Maybe the thing we could think of is any, anyone, any of us who are parents, or maybe you were, you were this sibling, but when you have your firstborn, they're special and chosen or whatever. And then another, if you have another child, how does the firstborn react to the secondborn coming along? It's not always great, right? There's, like, jealousy there. They're like, wait a second. I was everything to mom and dad, and now you are sharing this blessing with this other kid who's now shown up on the scene. Like, they get to, you know, they came late to the party, and they also get to be blessed by mom and dad. Like, a little bit of that is is how the Jews would have felt towards the Gentiles. of I was God's chosen special one, now everybody gets to be special, if everybody's special, nobody's special. Like, this is not a great, a great setup, right? So there's a little bit of that tension in the background of what we're going to read today. All of that being said, let me, let me jump in. Um, Romans 3, this, we're actually going to get to one of the most famous verses in the New Testament today. Romans 3, and I'm going to start with um, verse 21 and just read you a couple verses there to get us going. Oh, the pages are sticking together. Oh, the worst. Why do they make them so thin? I need fat pages. All right, here we go. 321. Uh, But now, was talking about being right, called righteousness, okay? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The Jews would have had the law, right? Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right. When he's talking about righteousness from God, we're talking about who is a good person. What does it mean to be right and and good in the world? And he's saying that it's happening apart from the law. In other words, we are not right and good before God because we have learned all the laws and all the rules of behavior, and we have followed them all perfectly. This is the game that the Jews were trying to play. Show me the rules, let me follow them perfectly, and then I will be justified before God because I followed the rules even better than my neighbor did, right? That kind of, that kind of idea. So Paul comes along and says, actually, that's not the way this works. It's not a game to play. In fact, the way we are going to be right before God is we are, he says, we're going to be justified by our faith in Jesus. Uh, Now, let's talk about a little bit of how that works. We're going to talk more about faith next week. But um, he uses this phrase justified by his grace, by Jesus' grace, or God's grace. Um, let's, Let's get into a couple terms there. The term justified is an important one. Uh, there's some synonyms for justified that make it useful for us. Maybe we can think through. If you are justified, think of it as like you are um, uh, acquitted in a, in, a, in a legal sense. You, you have been, you've been like set free um, or there's a, there's a reasonable, like you've been propped up in sort of a reasonable way. Like the, think about how we use justified. We, we say things like, um, well, I, I flew off the handle at her because she said this thing but I was justified because did you hear what she said or did you hear what she did or, or he did this thing and I was justified in my anger or like, that's how we use the term justified. We basically, it's, it's like a reasonable excuse or, uh, or we would say that the action, uh, propped up or justified the, 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 the behavior. Like I did this thing because this other thing happened. That's how we, that's how we talk about, um, justified. And so Paul says, we get to be justified. We get to be right before God because of the grace of God that he has given us a, a free gift. We have not earned this. This is something he gives to us. He justifies us. So how does that work? Well, he uses a word here uh, that's, that's important. He uses the word redemption. Here's the deal. Let's think of it kind of in financial terms. Number one, we have accumulated massive debt you and i have accumulated massive debt this is where he says in, in verse 23 all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god all of us there's loads of examples of that we have all messed up in some way we have hurt other people. We have cheated. We have lied. We have looked at things we shouldn't look at. We've spent money we shouldn't spend. We've said things to people that we shouldn't say. We have hurt other people. We have sinned against uh, them. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against ourselves. Um, in financial terms, there's a debt here. You, you, you accumulate debt when you take more than you give, like I'm taking this uh, or more than you have, right? You're, you're taking from others, that's that's when you start to accumulate debt. And when we sin, we end up, in some ways, we take from other people. We have, we have robbed other people of something. We, we kind of use this term in, in the legal world. Like if someone robs a bank and they go to jail for years, after they have get out of jail, we say, about that person, we say they have paid their debt to society. We don't mean that they paid back all the money. Maybe that did happen, maybe it didn't. But what we mean is... They took, and we balance that out in some way by making them pay. They had to pay back in some way. And what we took from them is their freedom. They took money or they took a life or whatever, and we took their freedom away by putting them in jail. And somehow we believe that, they, that this justifies things. We have now, we have some sort of balance scale here. They've done wrong, but they've, they, they, they had this debt, but they've paid it off by losing their, uh, their, their freedom. Paul tells us that Jesus, then, redeems us. He pays for this massive debt that we have, and he pays for it on our behalf. He doesn't owe it, but he, he pays for it. Um, to, to understand that, to understand the background of this, we need to talk about the Roman Empire again, because why not? Um, the, in, in the Roman Empire, there's no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. So they don't have bankruptcy law set up in, in that culture. That's, that's something we have. And so the way it worked back then was if you take more than you have or you go into debt with someone else and you can't pay it back, what you do, if, if you have land, your land gets taken away from you and you can maybe still work the land as a tenant farmer. But that, that, that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, what happens is you become a slave to that person. A lot of slavery in the Roman Empire is, is this way. You went into debt. Your freedom was then taken from you to pay off that debt. And you would work off that debt for as long as it took. Now, you can imagine, depending on how high the debt is, a lot of people would have their freedom taken from them because they got into debt with someone else. They became their slave, and that never went away. They, they were a slave to that person for the rest of their life. And they eventually died still a slave. And so in a sense, they gave up their freedom because they got into debt. They gave up their freedom and it was never uh, paid off. Then it could be, you know, years and years and years or they could die and, and, and still they were slaves. So Leviticus in the Old Testament in the Jewish law makes a provision for exactly that kind of thing. The, the, the laws in Leviticus are trying to govern the people of Israel and it and and in Leviticus 25, you can look this up later, but in Leviticus 25, it makes a a, a provision for this. It's, it goes, look, sometimes people get in debt, things happen, a famine happens, or you lose someone close to you, or, or you know, you lose your crop and you lose your money. And, you know, we, we would say you lose your shirt in the deal or whatever, like these things happen and people become indebted to someone else. And so there's a there's a provision in the law for exactly that kind of thing so that you don't have to become a slave to someone for the rest of your life. Um, In Leviticus 25, 25, it makes this provision, and it was for what is called in Hebrew a ga'al. A ga'al was a person uh, that was a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is someone who could step in and pay off your debt on your behalf. Now, in order to be a kinsman redeemer under the Jewish law, three things had to be true. Number one, you had to be a relative of the person. Okay, not anybody's paying off anybody's debt. You have to be family, or I'll pay this off for my brother, or whatever. So you had to be family. One. Number two, you had to act out of uh, not out of compulsion, but out of love. You couldn't be forced to do this with someone. You had to voluntarily step up and say, "I will, I will pay for this. Um, I will handle this." And number three, uh, the gaal, the kinsman redeemer, had to buy the liberation of the other person had to set them free by paying for it themselves. They couldn't take someone else's money in some sort of like ancient Ponzi scheme. They couldn't take someone else's money to pay off a debt. They had to use their own money. So family member, who voluntarily and freely pays off someone else's debt. This is a kinsman redeemer. And Paul is aware of that system because he's Jewish and he understands those laws and and, and that background. And he takes that idea of a kinsman redeemer, a family member who loves you and pays all your debt freely, and he applies that to Jesus and he applies it to the system of the entire world. All of us are in debt. All of us have sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus comes along and pays off our debt. We are all um, enslaved. We have all sinned. Now, we may not think of ourselves enslaved now in America. If we use a different word maybe for it. I would say addicted. We are all, um, we are addicted to, you know, drugs, pornography, food, approval, um, achievement. Like there's uh, loads of things that we become very dopamine addicted to. And even if we're not addicted in, 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 in any of those things, there's still this other thing we do where we try to be the good rule keeping person and we try to be good and perfect and right. And and we feel like we're justified because of how good we are. So there's those kind of games going on where we're very uh, addicted in some way, or we are playing this like approval. I'm a good, I'm a good person thing going on. And, um, and Paul lets us know that that, that's, those systems are just not going to work. Um, You're not going to do enough to prove that you're great. The reason um, you're not going to be able to pay off your own debt, the reason um, we are going to be made right before God and we can be good people is number two, Jesus pays off our debt. He pays this off. Jesus is that kinsman redeemer. He's a blood relative to us, he's family, um, and he pays a debt that he does not owe and he He pays it with his own blood to set us free. So how does that work? Um, This is a pillar of Christianity. This is really like a a foundational truth of our faith. Um, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 3, look at verse 24, where it continues on here, verse 24 through 26. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so... Paul uses this word, uh, it shows up in 1 John as well. It's the word propitiation, and that's not a word we use, but it's basically a sacrifice for, of one on behalf of the other. Um, in this case, a, a blood sacrifice. Now, the, uh, the idea of blood sacrifice is a bit of a foreign concept to us in America that just sounds gross. And, like, just not our thing and and very foreign and weird. But the idea of a sacrifice like that through blood goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Um, Strangely, like, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis and you read about Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin, they eat from the tree that they're not supposed to eat from, You, you... probably have some familiarity with that story. Um, But the next thing that happens is they cover themselves up because they realize they're naked, and they cover themselves up with animal skins. Well, if you're going to get the skin of an animal, an animal's going to have to die. That's the way that's going to work. And so, you see, as soon as they sin, their sin is covered up by blood of an animal. There's a sacrifice that is made to cover up their sin to cover up their shame and their nakedness and all that. And so there's a system that is set up in the Old Testament that the Jews are carrying on and other ancient cultures do something similar where they are sacrificing on behalf of, uh, uh, on their sin. They're, they're sacrificing, uh, I sinned and an animal is going to die for my sin. Sheep, goats, things like that. There's doves, there's different sacrifices that, that you see in, in Jewish law But that's super weird to us, animal sacrifice. But weirder than that is the idea that Jesus then is a sacrifice for our sin. Because now we're not talking about animal sacrifice, we're talking about human sacrifice. And that is a rough concept. Um, I'm not going to get all all into it. I actually read up some, uh, some, some famous atheists this week. Uh, just looking over this concept, and um, they don't love this idea of, uh, you know, that you will, that there's a human, that God in his anger and his wrath has to be appeased by the blood of his child. Just that sentence alone, that should rattle us, right? Like, wait a second, that is Ridiculous! Like, what kind of bloodthirsty God does this? And so, your famous sort of agnostics and atheists will will criticize that idea in Christianity. Also, I, I see in, in progressive Christianity, you see some of this kind of thing as well, where um, where where they're saying, "Oh no, the idea of God, blood sacrifice." But look, it's there in Romans, propitiation. Like, this is what he's talking about: that Jesus has died; his blood pays for. Uh, our sins. And we have to reckon with that. Hebrews 9.22 says this, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if we sin and it's going to be made, we're going to be made right, somebody's going to, somebody or something will die. There will be blood spilled to cover over our sins. And I guess the obvious question is, well, why? Like, why does it have to be that way? God sets it up that there has to be a blood sacrifice for our sins. Like, couldn't he come up with another way to deal with our sins? Like, maybe if you sin, you could just, like, give some money and, like, cover it. Like, how much? That was a bad sin. Is that a lot of money? Do I have to give a lot? Like, maybe that would work. Or maybe if you sin, we could cover over that with some volunteer hours, right? Or we could, like, do a fundraiser or, like, a bake sale or some—is there some way— that God could, for all, all humanity, for all time, come up with a different way that sin could be, could be dealt with. And, and I get that line of thinking. Um, but here's, here's why I think it requires the blood of Jesus. A couple things. First and foremost, I, I think the blood sacrifice idea of an animal, and then ultimately Jesus, I think this is meant to be an object lesson for us. The death of a goat uh, in the Old Testament... Uh, is going to be graphic and visual, and it will it will be very visceral to us. Like, oh, my sin, my sin is now being transmitted to this animal. This cost me something, like th- some, something had to die because of things that that I've done, and so it's it's a very visual way that someone has to pay and for justice to be served. Um, Jesus dies for our sins, and could God have set that up a different way? I, I suppose so. But the imagery is really important. He, Jesus dying for our sin lets us know that our sin is serious. And that's actually the part that I think we struggle with. We don't really believe that sin is serious. Or at least we don't think our sins are serious. We have ways of, of, of saying that. Like if, if, if we're going to talk about our sins, we'll go like, oh, I mean, I just told a little lie. I cheated a little bit. I fudged the numbers there a little bit. Yeah, I didn't quite handle that the right way. I said something I shouldn't have said. I made a mistake. It was just a little oops. This is the way we talk about our sins, which I get why we do that. We all, you know, like I said, we're all grading on the curve. So we want to be like, I mean, I just did a little, and and our sins we minimize. But when we talk about other people, we don't talk about it like that, do we? That person cut in front of me because they're a terrible person, a bad driver. You lie and cheat a little bit. It's not a big deal. But if someone lies and cheats you, they're a monster, right? They're the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity if they've cheated you. So how do you deal with that? Like if you're God looking at the earth, is he supposed to look at everybody in all of humanity for all time like they, they just made some little mistakes? Or should he look at us like we're all monsters? Like, how do you handle, handle that? I, I don't think the view that we all just make little mistakes really holds up or really works. Because it's not reality, right? Human trafficking that exists in the world today, that's, that's not just a, a little mistake. The fact that there was slave labor used to build World Cup stadiums in Qatar recently, that's not a, just a little oops. That's not just a minor sin, right? The fact that um, there are drug cartels that, are, that exist to get people addicted hopelessly to, to their product, that's not just a little mistake. The fact that there are pornographers who are exploiting women, that's not just a little oops. The fact that there are world leaders who are bent on destruction and wanna, want to out of their own pride, they want to sacrifice the young of their country to go fight other countries. Um, that's not just little stuff. Let's be serious about sin because it is serious business. There's some real dark stuff that happens in the world. And real dark stuff, if it's going to be dealt with, requires real sacrifice. The, the leaders of the world did not look at Hitler and go, he just needs some counseling and needs to be better understood if we could only get him and they didn't start a GoFundMe, me to try to help him, you know, deal with his child issues. The way evil was defeated there is that young men died on the beaches of Normandy. There was a blood sacrifice required to defeat real evil. And, and this is actually how it is. Sin is not a, a, a minor thing. It's, it's real and it's dark and this is what Jesus has done he has died for our sins because they're real and they're dark and there's some real real problems there so he has paid our debts which means that we should number 3 live like people who have had their debts canceled live like people who have their debts canceled if you think about financial debt if you are drowning in financial debt it is the worst feeling it is heavy i 've been there uh, many of you have probably been there as well it 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 just feels like it 's strangling you, and if those debts are cancelled or paid off it 's the opposite right it 's like this light, airy like I can breathe again, I can walk again, I feel free it 's huge and and there's there 's just a lightness about you when your debts have been canceled, and in the same way. When we think about sin, uh, we have to go, okay, Jesus paid my debts. He took care of me. He made me right. And there should be, for followers of Jesus, there should be a lightness about us. There should be a, oh, okay, I, I, don't, I don't get a lot of things right, and I, and I mess up, and I'm not perfect, and all of that, but this has been made right because of what Jesus has done. And that is a, that is a beautiful thing. Um, So we need to live like people who've had their debts canceled. Uh, We need to be set free. And let me talk to the parents in the room for a second. I really think this is something you need to teach your kids. This is something we need to teach kids. We're in a trend in the Western world, America in particular right now in parenting, where we think that one of the most important things we can teach kids is to um, basically just love themselves and, and, and have this self-esteem where they, our kids grow up thinking that they're just wonderful. And maybe that's a reaction to our parents. Those of us who are raising kids, we go like, well, my parents were mean to me. I'm not going to do that to my kids. So I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to be the nicest, sweetest parent ever. And I'm going to teach my kids that they are just wonderful and, and sort of pour as much self-esteem into kids as we can. And I, and I just think it's problematic, like that idea, like self-esteem, fine, but Reality is your kids sin. And if you don't let them know that, and if they don't understand that, they're never going to need to th- realize they have a need for a Savior. Jesus will never make sense to them. The gospel will never make sense to them because we've told them, you're kind of perfect the way you are. And that's fine while they're in their house, but they're going to hit adulthood and find out that they're not perfect. Usually uh, a, a dating partner will tell them, um, an employer like somebody's going to come along and be like actually you're just not that great and they're going to be like but my mom and dad said i was and it's like no but there are stakes here guys we need we need to and we need to let kids know like yeah actually you you blew it but this is what jesus came for like he died for you too for me too mom and dad blew it too like he he died for us and and paid for our sins like we we need to pass that on to the next generation um, and even if we're not parents in the room, um, I, I think we need to share this truth with others that instead of trying to prove how much better we are than anyone else or anything like that, we just go, man, we, we humbly say, man, God has been gracious to me. God has, has taken care of, m- of my sins. Um, I think this is extremely good news that we need to be aware of and we need to share. I want to share this story with you. Finish um, I heard this fascinating story. and Maybe you've heard it. Um, I actually looked up. I've shared this on a Sunday before, but it was 15 years ago. So if you were here, congratulations. I felt like that's enough time I can share this again. Um, I heard, so L- L- Lieutenant Hiro Onoda was a Japanese lieutenant during World War II. Onoda, well, Onoda was what became known as a holdout. He was one of the soldiers who continued to fight World War II long after it was over. Listen to the story. Lieutenant Anota was unaware or unwilling to accept that the war was over. After the Philippines were captured by the Allies, Anota became an inadvertent member of a four-man band of strugglers, stragglers surviving in the jungles of the Philippines as guerrillas. In 1950, one member of the holdout surrendered. Within days, he wrote a note to his comrades telling them that the war was over. This note was copied and dropped over the jungle, more leaflets were dropped later, and announcements that the war had concluded were broadcast over loudspeakers aimed into the jungle. The holdouts thought it was propaganda. Anota later became separated from his remaining two comrades, both of whom were later killed. Each of the three holdouts truly continued the war, staging raids on Filipino campsites and search parties, and engaging in firefights with Filipino soldiers. Onoda simply didn't believe World War II had ended. He later said he assumed the attempts at contact were American efforts at trying to trick him into surrendering. His presence as a combatant still fighting in the Philippines known, Onoda became a legendary figure in Japan. It ultimately took a wandering Japanese student who embarked on the hunt for Onoda to bring him out of hiding. In 1974... Norio Suzuki entered the Lubang jungle in search of Lieutenant Inoda. Suzuki found him and convinced Inoda that he'd been fighting a war for 29 years after its completion. Isn't that nuts? It's, It's wild to me that we would continue to fight a war when it's already over and that we would hold it up as like, oh, this is someone who stays at their post. This is admirable. I get stay at the post and I get the value.